Hebrews 9, verses 15 through 22, God's holy word from the New Testament. Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised and eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself, and all the people saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. As far as the reading of God's word, may bless it to us. Let's pray. So are you a cricket fan? Well, for most of us Americans, cricket is kind of a head-scratcher. Sure, in other parts of the world it's huge, but we generally do not know the rules, and it kind of remains a mystery. By just spectating, we can't quite put the whole game together. And it's really the same way with most activities and games that you've never seen before and know nothing about. Sitting in the stands really isn't enough to understand it completely. You need a tour, some a tutor, someone to explain the rules. But this is also how it goes with technical legal proceedings in court, old graduation ceremonies, and even new board games. And it's especially true of those ancient rituals of the Bible. For back in Moses' day, they all knew what they were doing. It never dawned on them to write down the rules for us us foreigners 300 or 3,000 years in the future. Thus, as we watch the ceremonies in Scripture, many of them are kind of like a cricket game to us, strange and undecipherable. Hebrews, though, takes a moment to explain for us some of the rules of ancient covenant making. And the payoff is greater clarity about what our Savior did for us. So the vital role and power of blood has just been set before us in verses 11 through 14. And this wasn't just any blood, but the blood that redeems us comes not from some furry four-legged friend, and it sure isn't our own blood. Rather, the Holy Son of God, come in the flesh, drew blood from his own veins. He entered that heavenly sanctuary on our behalf. And he offered up his life and blood to purify our consciences from the mortal sins that condemn us completely. Overall, then, this is an amazing act of sacrifice that Jesus did for us out of love. And yet, as it is with the death of our Lord, you can always go deeper, which is kind of the spiritual gift of this author of Hebrews. He often likes to do his theology under a microscope. And so he ups the power of magnification here. 
He says, since Christ offered himself to purify our hearts, therefore he became the mediator of the new covenant. Jesus' labor on the cross won him the high honor and beloved position of mediator. Now, of course, the new covenant is our relationship with God. It is new in that it is different from the old covenant of Sinai, but the covenant embodies our relationship and standing with the Lord. As the covenant formula expresses, he is our God and we are his people. And a mediator makes this relationship possible. For a mediator is a go-between. He branches the distance, brings us close, and removes any hostility within the relationship. Indeed, as the mediator, Jesus is the reconciler, the peacemaker. In our rebellion, we wanted nothing to do with God. And in his justice, the Father's wrath stood against us. But through Jesus, the Father was reconciled to us. By the power of his blood, Jesus washed away all your sin, and he appeased the Father. As your mediator, Christ made a reality, the benediction, may the Lord give you peace. Now, of course, in actuality, the list is long of all that Christ did and does as our mediator. And so the author here highlights just a few First up, he's our mediator because a death occurred for redemption. Now, this mention of redemption links back to verse 12 that we looked at last week. Yet in verse 12, the redemption was more comprehensive and general. Here, though, it's specific. It redeems from sin. For transgressions lock us up in the dungeon of capital punishment. Sin enslaves us to the curse of death, and it chains us to an eternal condemnation. The transgressions here, though, that Hebrews mentions are actually not ours. Instead, they are the transgressions under the first covenant. These are the sins committed by the saints of the Old Testament, those party to the Mosaic covenant. Now, our pardon and our purification were already stated in verse 14, but this is the redemption of the transgressors of the old covenant. This means that the effects of Christ's blood go forward to us and backward as well. His death redeems us in the future and it saves those uh, in the past under the Old Testament. Simply put, the author is declaring that Jesus' redemption paid for all the sins of God's people under the law. As you know, the Old Testament is filled with fantastic and flawed saints. There's a clay-footed David, the most blessed Jael, weepy Jeremiah, and the troubled Saul. And yet all these sinners of old had redemption from sin through Jesus Christ. This is the power of Christ's mediation. It saves and brings to God the dead, the living, and the yet to be born. This is the redemption from sin, though, that that essentially covers what theologians refer to as Christ's passive obedience. Christ's passive obedience is his obedience that pays for the debts 
of our sin. But there's a second accomplishment of Christ's mediation mentioned here in verse 15. He says, so that those called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. His redemption also earned for us and the Old Testament saints an eternal inheritance. Now, this promised inheritance is clearly heaven, the Sabbath rest of new creation. Hence, it is labeled eternal, belonging to the everlasting age to come. And again, thinking of the Old Testament saints, this stands out. Jesus did not earn for Abraham or David or anyone else the land of Canaan. He did not die for a small piece of real estate between the Jordan and the Mediterranean. Such acreage of this age is destined for the fire. Even the Old Testament saints knew that God had to have a better land in store for them. And it is Jesus who merited this inheritance of heaven for all of God's people, old and new. And this benefit of Christ's work encompasses what is often called his active obedience. Jesus' righteousness that earned heavenly, resurrected life for us. Thus, in this one verse, Hebrews declares that Jesus is our mediator, that Jesus' passive obedience paid for our sins, and his active obedience merited our imperishable inheritance of heavenly life. This is theology under a microscope. At a distance, Jesus died for you. But up close, his blood ransomed you from sin, won heaven for all of God's people, old and new, for an everlasting peace. Such fine detail of our salvation is exquisite and beautiful. It should fill us with love and wonder, praise and adoration though it also does make us a bit curious. How does Jesus' death do all this, particularly for the Old Testament saints? If he is the mediator of the new covenant, well, sure, his death applies to us who are part of the new covenant, but what about those who are members of another covenant? Well, to, to anticipate our raised hand, the author now delves into some covenant anatomy. He spells out the finer workings of covenants in general, and Sinai in particular, to show how Christ's blood can cover our sins and the sins committed under that old covenant. And he begins with the general in verses 16 and 17. Though in these verses, we hit a translation issue. As you can see, the ESV mentions a will That is, a last will and testament, the things that parents make for their kids. However, this translation is an old error that failed to get corrected. Hebrews here is not talking about wills, but he's still elaborating on covenants, particularly those of the Old Testament era. Thus, the first part of verse 16 should read, where there is a covenant. This sets the topic. He's dealing with covenants. And the second half of this verse should be translated as follows. It is necessary for the death of the covenanter to be offered. That is, the one who made it, or the covenanter, actually can refer to either party of the covenant. 
Thus, the party of the covenant must offer their death, which refers to the covenant oath, which is called self-maledictory. That is, when you made a covenant, you swore to keep it, and if you failed, you swore and submitted to being put to death for your sin. Basically, the oath said, I will keep the covenant or I will die. This is the necessity of offering up one's death. And so one had to offer your death in the oath to make a covenant. Next, in verse 17, the first line should be read as, the covenant is valid upon deaths. The text here does not say at death, but upon deaths, plural, or maybe even better, upon dead bodies. And this line is an allusion to Psalm 50, which is why we read it. There, in Psalm 50, verse 5, it reads, Those who covenanted with me upon sacrifices, plural. This refers to the animals who were killed at the ratification ceremony of the covenant. And the slain animals symbolically represented what would happen to the covenanter if they broke the covenant. It was all quite a dramatic dramatic ceremony. The covenanter declared, As this animal is dead, so shall I be if I break my oath. Thus the covenanter offered to die if he was delinquent. And the sacrifice sealed this oath with blood. And then the covenant was officially valid and inaugurated. Thus the last line of verse 17, the covenant is not in force as long as the covenanter is alive, which means until he offered his death. Now again, this is a bit technical, a bit like uh, cricket to us. But the, and this er- erroneous translation doesn't help. But the point is that the covenants of the Old Testament were valid only after the covenanter offered to die if he sinned and after his oath was symbolically portrayed in the sacrifice of animals. Moreover, the oath for death was the penalty for covenant violation for sin. And the author takes these general comments about covenants and he applies them to Moses. Therefore, he says, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Here, inauguration matches up with being valid and in force, and blood aligns with the offered death of the covenanter, symbolically consecrated through the animal sacrifices. Thus, the Sinai covenant was not signed, sealed, and delivered until a death was offered if it was violated. Now, the author has in mind here a specific passage, an event in the Old Testament, namely Exodus 24 and the covenant ratification ceremony. Now, we've read this passage a few times since being in Hebrews. This is when God's glory was on the top of Mount Sinai. Israel was camped at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain was fenced off as being holy. Then, at the base camp, Moses built an altar with 12 pillars of stone to represent the 12 tribes. Then some bulls were slaughtered and offered up on the altar, and all the blood was collected into basins. Next, as is stated in verse 19, Moses spoke all the commandments to the law of the people. 
he gave a public reading of God's word. Now, of course, the reading of the law is the setting forth of the terms of the covenant. These laws revealed the obedience required of the people. They set forth the blessings for law-keeping, and they painted the curses for disobedience. The reading of the law also then disclosed the Lord's commitment to his people. That is, the blessings and curses were God's promises and guarantee on how he would be their God. Now, of course, since God cannot lie, his covenant oath is assumed in the reading of the law. It doesn't have to be explicitly noted. The people, however, they responded twice to the law, and they said that they would obey everything written by God. And as the people swore undying fealty and obedience to God, they offered up their death. They willingly submitted to the penalty of death if they should be found delinquent in doctrine or in life. Then, with the law read, God's commitment, and with the people's oath, their allegiance, Moses brought forth those basins of blood. Half of the blood was in one bowl, and the other half in another bowl. And yet the main dish of blood had a few condiments, water, scarlet wool, and hyssop. Now, it's unclear why Hebrews mentions these things here, for they do not show up in Exodus 24. Instead, adding water and red yarn to blood comes from a ritual from Leviticus 14. But the author assumes that they were used also here in the ratification ceremony. Either way, water has the value of purification, Blood pro-offered death and consecrated the oath, while the added water brought the power of purification. And the scarlet thread, this was for intensification. In the sacrificial system, redundancies were built in to increase the efficacy of the ritual. Thus, red wool put in red blood is red upon red to highlight that we're talking about death here. If they sin, the blood of the people will surely be spilt. Furthermore, the hyssop branch was the applicator. It was dipped in blood and then shaken to sprinkle the blood on the uh, various items. Indeed, in this way, Moses sprinkled both the book and all the people. Now, Moses sprinkling the people didn't happen on, on them personally. Rather, he sprinkled the 12 pillars that stood for the twelve tribes. And yet, as the blood was applied to the people, it sealed their punishment of death if they were disobedient. It made legally valid their oath, if we obey, we live, if we disobey, we die. The blood on the people essentially declared the truth that the wages of sin is death. Though interesting, the author mentions that Moses also sprinkled the book of the covenant. Now, this again is not recorded in Exodus 24. Instead, there, Moses sprinkled the altar, which seems to be parallel to the sprinkling of the book here. For what did the altar and the book represent? Well, they stood for God. It was God's altar and book, just as the 12 pillars were the people. The blood, then, was also applied to God if he failed, which, of course, is impossible, 
but this blood on God certified to the people that the Lord would never fail them, that his word was reliable and certain. And then, with both parties sprinkled, Moses could announce that the covenant was made and sealed. Verse 20. This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded you. Now, this line has the same legal force as, I now pronounce you man and wife. It is in the saying of it, it is done. Yet with the Sinai covenant made valid in blood, the author now mentions even more uses of blood. In fact, it wasn't just the book and the people that took a shower in blood, but nearly everything in the covenant got blood, particularly the tent and its sacred furniture and vessels. Now, this refers to the tabernacle and the holy utensils that made worship possible. When Moses set up the tabernacle and in its ordination service, he dashed blood on nearly every part. But why put blood on the sacred furniture? What does this do? Well, as it is relayed in the next verse, this sprinkling of blood purified everything. Now, for us, there's a leap in logic here. For the blood sprinkled upon the people sealed their death if they disobeyed, while blood on the furniture purified. So which is it? Well, it's both. You see, blood is one of those things that can do many things at the same time. As they swore obedience, the blood made them liable to the curse. But with this newfound promise of obedience, the blood also gave the people a clean slate. For though the blood symbolized their death, the blood was not actually theirs, but it was sacrificial blood in order to purify them from past sins. Thus the blood did double duty. It declared the punishment that they deserved if they sinned, but it also provided atonement for past sins. The blood revealed that sin for, for a death had occurred, either the sin for the, or the, either for the people's death, if they sin, or the animal's death for forgiveness. This is the same dynamic whereby blood can symbolize death and life at the same time. Hence the last line in verse 22 here, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It's impossible to obtain forgiveness without blood being shed. You cannot be forgiven without a death. And the reason for this is clear enough. Our sins deserve death, our blood being shed. And so to rescue us from such a judgment, a death must happen to pay off our sin debt. And with this, a circle is created with verse 15, where Christ's death redeemed the sinners under the first covenant. The blood of ratification bound the people to die if they sinned. Animal blood stood in for purification and forgiveness. Well, as you know, the people of old sinned out the wazoo, and cow blood couldn't actually pay for human sin. Thus, in stepped Jesus to provide the death that earned an eternal redemption, everlasting pardon, and the heavenly inheritance. Jesus' blood satisfied the curse 
that Israel earned by their sin and won the blessing for God's people. And this is how Christ is the mediator of the new covenant for us and for the Old Testament saints. How could his death affect salvation for Israel, who were long dead and were guilty sinners under the Old Covenant? Well, he could because his blood provided what the law demanded. The law insisted that justice had to be satisfied and the people purified. And Jesus did both. And if the power of Jesus' death could go back in history to save sinners, then how much more can it reach in the future to save you? Indeed, the whole purpose of this semi-technical exposition about covenant and death, its whole purpose is to showcase that blood actually accomplishes something. Sure, blood has symbolism, But it also does real things. And the blood of Christ truly provides the genuine blessings of your grand salvation. His death paid for all your sins and all the sins of the Old Testament saints. And his obedient blood merited your eternal inheritance of blessing. And such powerful and effective blood for you is meant to strengthen your faith. If Christ's death does it all, well, then you can trust him completely. And your faith should be in no other. No other sacrifice does for you what Jesus does. Thus, our faith is in him and in him only. Additionally, this potent redemption of Christ imparts to you confidence. It gives you the assurance that you're truly forgiven that you are loved by God, and that you can now draw near to God God, uh, for worship in peace. Yes, a mediator ushers in peace and harmony. And so providing atonement for you, Christ gives you a perfect peace and an overflowing joy with the Lord. And such peace is the foundation for our worship now, And it is the certainty of our worshiping him forever. Let us then rest in Christ and his wonderful death for us and in no other. And then being at peace with our heavenly father, may we magnify and worship him to the praise of his glorious grace. In this life and in the next, on earth and in heaven, so that all the glory may be To God and his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, now and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let us pray.